today is Grady Hanna. Grady is a 15-year veteran of Silicon Valley who's been on launch teams of multiple companies and driven sales, marketing, and strategy. Grady co-founded Nightwear in 2015 to help those with PTSD by treating their nightmare disorder and helping them get back to sleep. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. This is not investment advice and we are not investment advisors. Uh, the podcast is available on Apple, Google, and uh, Spotify. First off, here's the format for this investor talk. We'll talk for about 40 to 60 minutes. After that, we'll take call-ins from our audience. In order for you and the audience to do more than just watch, you need to register an account with call-in. To register, you can access call-in at callin.com or through the call-in social podcasting app in your app store. The call-in platform works similarly to Clubhouse Rooms and Twitter Spaces for a modern social audio experience. Once you've registered, you can use text chat or you can press the website's call-in button to indicate you want to speak up. So we're going to get into some news, but first, Grady, uh, welcome to the show. And can you introduce yourself and also your company? Thank you for having me, Stephen. My name is Grady Hanna. I'm co-founder and CEO of Nightwear. Nightwear is a non-invasive treatment for nightmare. <clears throat> Nightwear is a non-invasive treatment for nightmare disorder, which is a key symptom of PTSD. Uh, approximately 50 to 70% of people with PTSD have invasive nightmares where they're re-experiencing some aspect of their trauma in their dreams. It's extremely disruptive to their sleep. It wakes them up throughout the night. It has uh, significant knock-on effects in terms of comorbidities and exacerbated symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder as a part of the nightmare disorder. Nightwear is a wrist-worn device. We utilize the Apple Watch and iPhone. It's an FDA-cleared prescription-only device, and it utilizes AI to monitor a person's sleep and detect the fight or flight response they have to their traumatic nightmares. Nightwear then intervenes using vibrotactile feedback, buzzing the watch to arouse the patient out of the nightmare without waking them. We have insurance coverage through TRICARE uh, for active duty service members, and we've made great progress uh, over the last couple of years since our FDA clearance to really help a lot of patients. And we've got prescribers very excited about the way that we can improve people's lives and improve their disease states utilizing our non-invasive treatment. That's great, thank you. And by the way, you know, as, as a Wall Street analyst, I would often talk about nightwear because something I loved about it was that it took a consumer product, which is the Apple Watch, and it took the sensors and the actuators on that product and it used those for detection and for therapy. And I thought that was really incredible. And I, I, I think that's a, a you know, uh, that, I, and I hope we're gonna see a lot more of those utilizing, you know, the, the sensors on consumer electronics that, that maybe consumers would have bought anyway, uh, and that we can achieve, you know, good results for patients through that. But I thought that was very in, ingenious and very, very clever. Um, well, in particular, Apple and the Apple Watch, uh, they conducted a wide uh, clinical trial focusing on the accuracy of their heart rate sensors, their industrial design, their product design, their R&D in terms of bringing new sensors to the forefront, it's unparalleled. 
Uh, but it's certainly a trade-off. Uh, many more traditional device investors, they prefer people to have their own device uh, that's custom. But in our opinion, no one in the world can out-design and out-innovate Apple in terms of providing excellent advanced sensors in a usable format with the software infrastructure, the usability infrastructure. So we're very happy uh, because we're able to de-risk so much of our supply chain, so much of our uh, product requirement in terms of QA, QMS. Uh, the Apple Watch has two FDA indications. So uh, yeah, we're very happy working with the ecosystem and Apple's been a fantastic partner for us. That's great. So. Now moving on to news, news from the trades. So the the first piece of news is that a lot of people on this call will know that Pair Therapeutics announced the other week that it is exploring strategic alternatives. That's usually a euphemism for sale, merger, uh, licensing, something like that. Um, further, perhaps even more surprisingly, it announced that it would not be holding a, uh, a fourth quarter earnings call. Um, uh, we saw uh, like a, a few million dollars of revenue per quarter for pair, but tens of millions of dollars in expenses uh, per quarter for pair. And they, mu they must see that they're not going to turn that around in the near future if they're doing this. I just checked and their stock was trading at 27 cents, uh, a market cap of $37 million. That is, you know, very far fallen. It's a, it's a, it's a fallen angel, um, uh, you know, uh, so very concerning. It has three products cleared by the FDA, but the market's not giving any any credit, uh, you know, clearly for those products. Um, and I think Pear was known, uh, it was known for many things. It was known for thought leadership. It was known for trailblazing. It was known for having the first and maybe I think also the second FDA cleared digital therapeutics products. It was known for a number of things. Strategically, it was known for insisting that its products were prescription therapeutics, that they could be as powerful as molecular therapeutics, and they should be treated as therapeutics and approved as therapeutics and paid for as therapeutics uh, with pricing, rough pricing equivalency they wanted and stood for. And this is very different from, say, a company that's building a consumer version, an employer version, and a prescriber version of their app. They were pushing the prescriber model and prescriber uh, dollars. And they, they, they were also known for raising a lot of money and going fast and trying to build a, a platform, a whole platform fast. So Pear known for a lot of things, um, uh, you know, and, and now this is, you know, and, and it's, it's uh, market cap was very high at one point. Um, so Grady, what, what do you think it means that we're seeing this, you know, apparent end of, of Pear? Well, I have to say that in many of the conferences that I would attend where Pear and some of the other <clears throat> leading companies were focusing, it wasn't as often that I heard them talking about doctors and prescribers, because ultimately doctors and prescribers have to believe that your treatment can outweigh the other opportunities that they have available to them, the other, the other tools that they have available to them. And so signing licensing deals, signing payers, things of that nature, um, while they're excellent headlines and they're certainly signs of health. In some cases, I felt that some of the early uh, trailblazers were maybe putting the cart before the horse a little bit and really uh, having enormous burn rate, enormous staffing, and uh, huge market access teams without, in my opinion, having those fundamental uh, doctors 
bought in, showing prescribing behavior, showing prescribing uh, progress. And so in the case of, of Nightwear and, and many other companies that I know that are doing very well, uh, it's really hand-to-hand focusing on uh, doctors and prescribers and making sure that that prescribing behavior is being established. So uh, certainly disappointing to see uh, where things are at with Pear and, and Better Therapeutics had, had a layoff uh, announced this week as well. Uh, and that, and they're, they're apparently going to be getting a uh, an FDA indication uh, in the foreseeable future. But yeah, when you're when you're when you're burning ten uh, x the money that you're making, it's it's a very difficult to sustain model. Um, even when you're shooting for that, um, you know that future goal. Uh, when you're trying to figure out a down how a download is going to work at a, as a prescription. And it's going to work in a way that's never been done before. Um, many of these payers, they're just not accustomed to to moving so quickly. So um, I think that there's a there are certainly some lessons to be learned here. And many companies that that are doing things uh, a bit more conservatively, a, a, with a bit less of a um, huge money raise, huge valuation, that then are kind of coming crashing back to earth, as you said. And I, I heard one analysis said that all of that, uh, all or nearly all of the prescription digital therapeutics companies that went public in the boom um, were now trading below cash, uh, and so that that means that the market's giving them you know no credit for uh, for what they for you know what they built, uh, which is it's sad to see, uh, uh, and uh, it, you know clearly the shift, the regime change we've had from a low interest rate, low inflation environment just uh, six quarters ago to a high interest rate, high inflation environment today has had a very big impact. Um, so then the next is Cognito Therapeutics. Wasn't really familiar with this company. Um, their CEO, Brent Vaughn, announced that he'd raised a $73 million Series B round that was led by Founders X Ventures. I also was not very familiar with Founders X Ventures, but that's Helen Liang uh, there. Um, other investors include um, IAG Capital Partners, wasn't very familiar with them. Starbloom Capital, wasn't very familiar with them. Totally raised to date is $126 million. Um, they use neuromodulation. It's a Boston-based company, and they use it to treat neurodegenerative disorders, uh, specifically Alzheimer's. Um, they have an electronic headset that they use for neuromodulation. Um, and the product has received breakthrough designation from the FDA. So when I look at this, I'm, I, first of all, I find it very encouraging that in such a tough fundraising environment as today, tough for all of digital health and maybe especially tough for prescription digital therapeutics, uh, I find it very encouraging that you're seeing you know, a fundraise of 73 million, but I'm also noticing that, you know, I, I would have expected to see, maybe I would have liked to see um, some of the top digital therapeutics uh, venture funds on this deal. So that would be uh, like Jazz or 5AM or or others. Um, and, I'm, and you're not seeing any of them. In fact, I'm seeing, you know, venture funds names that I'm not very familiar with investing in the digital health world. Um, it's also good to see the FDA. I would, I would say that, that their level of... Um, receiving digital diagnostics and therapeutics and approving them and granting breakthrough designation has been strong. It has not been, you know, we, we're not all sitting around complaining about the slowness of the FDA in 
in digital, as many people did for decades in other areas like molecular therapeutics. And so it's good to see the FDA still on the ball. But what's your interpretation of this deal? Well, <clears throat> I know that uh, Cognito is a company that had very good initial data. Um, and while it isn't a large N, it was very promising data. And that's what's kind of built their foundation. Uh, you know, that is a pre-market company. Uh, that's a large raise. Uh, they have a pretty significant team, but I think that they have a, they have a good plan in place uh, to get to market. Uh, there's always risk in, in a pre-market company, um, but they've been able to go out and, and, and raise. And, and then in the, in the case of Jazz, uh, I don't think they've had as many more, more recent, uh, you know, they obviously led with, uh, with Akili and, um, and with Pear. And I know they have had some other uh, digital health, digital therapeutics companies, but they've also invested in Aura and other sectors. So I think that they've uh, perhaps diversified a little bit as well. Uh, in the case of the FDA, uh, we had a fantastic experience with the FDA. So Nightwear had received breakthrough status, and, and our lead reviewer, pa Patrick Antikowiak, was fantastic. I can't recall uh, us waiting more than 48 hours for response to any given question. Uh, they were extremely proactive, and uh, they, they are bullish on digital therapeutics, as I think a lot of people still are. Uh, you know, you've got to realize that uh, every, every treatment is different. Every, you know, and when you look at pharma and biotech, right, there's, there's volatility in, in every market sector. But I think that the, um, the promise of digital therapeutics is still very strong. But I would also say that in the case of Cognito and Nightwear and Freespira and some other uh, companies, they are going the more traditional durable medical equipment route rather than uh, creating... Uh, you know, you, you know, a new paradigm for uh, pharmaceutical distribution as a software. Um, I think mm -hmm. when you have too many axes of innovation, right, when you're going to innovate in a treatment and you're going to innovate in the reimbursement pathway, that's going to have additional knock-on effects. I think that it can become uh, um, too high a risk. And so in the case of Nightwear, uh, because Nightwear provides a direct intervention, uh, it's uh, it's beneficial for us to have control over our hardware and actually a requirement of our FDA uh, quality assurance. But but in addition, um, much of digital therapeutics has, has really been driven by cognitive behavioral therapy. And so the promise there is maybe the ubiquity, the opportunity to be presented on any device. But maybe that freedom, that form, that freedom and form factor um, maybe that worked in, in detriment and maybe having a hardware piece where it's understood um, how to reimburse could have benefited um, some of these companies earlier. Because when you point out when your market cap is less than your cash on hand, um, folks have folks have made their decision. So next, uh, you added to our news uh, announcements, Applied VR, very interesting company. Uh, they had an announcement. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So in the case of Applied VR, uh, that's a company that they utilize off-the-shelf technology, but they also have custom hardware. And that was the key to them being able to get uh, a Medicare code. And I don't know how extensive their economic analysis is in terms of how their pricing decisions will be made. But that's certainly relevant in that it's a hybrid approach between utilizing off-the-shelf technology 
as well as custom hardware. And they've raised, I know it, it somewhere just north of $50 million, I think all in, and, and they've got a strong team there. So, uh, you know, great to see them get that, that breakthrough. So that, that that's progress for the whole sector of digital therapies company, you know, uh, getting a Hicks fix code. Um, that's great. And then, and then I'll mention just uh, Artera has launched, uh, has is a new digital health company that's launched with 90 million in funding. That's also good news. We're living through a time of layoffs and non-funding and we're and just this past week, there've been some big funding announcements. So this is a company that's being launched with 90 million in funding. That's unusual. Um, and it, Artera it creates personalized prostate cancer uh, uh, diagnoses based on your existing data about your, uh, uh, and so it, it uses an AI analysis of your of existing data about your diagnosis to give you a better diagnosis and treatment plan. Um, and it's backed by J&J, Time Ventures, um, uh, the Koch brothers, uh, KOTU, Walden Catalyst Ventures, Briar Capital, and Mark Benioff. Uh, so I mentioned that just because th these are not typical digital health investors. Of course, J&J Innovation is very, very important, but these are not typical digital health investors. And KOTU is coming in early, um, very early. And so here you see a digital health company launch and somehow landing outstanding investors who are not classic digital health investors like Mark Benioff or, or others. Um, so it, interesting, it shows that sometimes these announcements we get uh, in this time of, 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 of difficult funding for digital health are actually coming from outside investors jumping in. I don't know if you see any, any, any if you have any comment to make on Artera. Well, I guess <clears throat> to your point about non-traditional investors, um, yeah, I think there are a lot of uh, funds that have made the decision that they will not be involved in um, FDA regulated products. But I think that there's room for evolution there because when you're talking about a digital therapeutic or something that's a class two device, uh, especially if it's already in market, uh, the risk profile is different and it's more readily understood. Nightwear, if you compare it to, say, uh, an interventional product like a cardiology, for instance, it's a very simple product to understand. It doesn't require a procedure. Uh, it's more akin to, say, a uh, you know a, any number of the, the DME products that, that are available in the market. And so I think there's a, there's an opportunity for understanding. I think that people, many times they'll have a personal uh, affinity uh, for a certain disease state. They will have had a loved one or a family member or something that that's a personal concern of theirs that can get them motivated around an investment. So um, I, I really, I, I feel like we're still in early days. And uh, mm -hmm. again, uh, there's certainly some some reckoning going on in the market, especially as you mentioned with the downturn in the cost of capital uh, raising uh, uh, so, so significantly. Uh, but in the case of Nightwear, uh, we we've raised just north of five million dollars, right, which is an extremely small amount considering uh, where we're at in the market. And uh, we've received a couple million dollars in grants from the Department of Defense. Uh, there are many ways that a startup can make it without having the $90 million, $70 million raise. Uh, and, and I think the risk profile, for instance, of developing a software as a treatment is different than and, and utilizing off-the-shelf technology is different than something that is custom uh, bespoke, especially if it's interventional. So, and by the way, for our audience, feel free to comment or ask questions in the chat. You have to be logged in to call in uh, to 
uh, to, to do that. So I'll move on to macro outlook because that matters a lot. What the Fed's doing and what the economy is doing is, is matters a lot to to um, the digital health fundraising environment and also when we're going to see more of a, an opening and easier environment for digital health fundraising. So the Fed announced last week that it was raising rates 25 basis points. Um, but that was uh, and that also more importantly, it announced that it was nearing the end of raising rates to fight inflation. So we're actually looking for that catalyst uh, because that catalyst could signal uh, a more generous fundraising environment uh, in the innovation community between young digital health companies and VCs. Um, so uh, and my own forecast there is, you know, I, I see the Fed uh, announcing an end to raising rates, possibly end of Q2, beginning of Q3. And that and that could be followed by stock market lift uh, and also digital health investors who are sitting on the sidelines jumping back in the pool. So that, that, that's my, my forecast there. Um, so the next is that, uh, you know, financial headlines the last couple of weeks have been full of problems for banks and commercial real estate lenders um, who are stuck with loans with low fixed rates that have lost value on their books. Um, and this has, has been very disruptive. So you got people canceling going to Vive, which is going on right now, people canceling going to HIMSS, um, people canceled going to South by Southwest. Uh, because of these and, and staying back. But I, I think I'm, we're seeing, hopefully this is not going to get worse. You know, the Fed has announced a very strong backing of uh, backstopping of firms. And so we, hopefully we can get, we can sort of, um, you know, move past these headlines that are causing a lot of disruption uh, and uncertainty in the market. The next is the NASDAQ has been going sideways for the last three months. Um, that's not good for digital health. We would like to see a rising high NASDAQ. We haven't had a high NASDAQ because the Fed went from nearly 0% risk-free rate to about 5% today risk-free rate. That's caused the NASDAQ to pull in. You know, we'd like to see the Fed stop raising rates and the NASDAQ to go up. That would be good for digital health. Um, the stock market is still risk-off. Risk-off means they don't like earnings negative uh, growth companies. They, they might like earnings positive growth companies, but they don't like earnings negative growth companies. Young digital health companies tend to be earnings negative growth companies. These are still disfavored in the stock market. It means VCs don't know how to have difficulty pricing things, don't know when they're going to see a great receptivity for IPOs. Um, so also uh, market observer Jason Calacanis made a call the other week that we're going to have a Fed created recession uh, that because of its rate raising and the uncertainty uh, created by that. And I compare that with Fidel. And so we have a market observer calling a recession. Um, and I compare that with Fidelity's view. Fidelity says that we are at the end of the expansionary period and we they expect we will see, but are not yet in a contractionary period. And they see the contraction as being potentially short. Um, so that, so, but, but most people are predicting that we will see a contraction recession um, sometime in the future. And we're starting to have people call that we're in a recession. So next, um, you know, um, uh, so also the IPO window is still closed. However, um, again, Jason Calacanis is calling an opening of the IPO window, specifically pointing to uh, stock to Wall Street talk about an IPO of Instacart, which would be the biggest IPO of the year if they did it, uh, and ARM, the chip designer. Uh, and if we see, so the way that it's going to work for digital health is that if we get some famous tech companies go public and they're well-received and they make money for IPO investors, then the window can be open for digital health companies as well. And that's good because there's a lot of deals, funding deals in digital health that are not happening at the later stages uh, because people can't see a way to an IPO. So we need the IPO window to open for tech and then open for digital health. And so we could be seeing pieces of that come together. So 
Next, uh, so any any other thoughts about the macro environment, uh, Grady? Boy, I feel like you have so much expertise there. It's just great to hear an update from you and get your take. Oh, thanks. So then next is the fundraising environment and private market activity. So here, you know- Come back Rock later, Health, please. Um, here, so Rock Health uh, predicted we would see maybe about 10 billion in digital health funding for 2023, which is about one third of the funding level from the peak year of 2021. So way down, they predicted in January would be way down. I think we're coming in at lower than that, unfortunately. Um, so that, that, but we'll we'll get a, an update from Rock Health maybe a few weeks after the end of March. Um, uh, but I think we're coming in. That was a pessimistic prediction at the time in January. I think we're coming in below that. And what I continue to see is is that uh, deals in Series C through I, through crossover and IPO, I'm seeing those down 95% to 100%. Um, series A and B, I'm seeing those down, call it 70%. Um, uh, and then seed and angel rounds, I'm seeing those down only 10%. And so I think what's going on there is it's different people who are doing the seed and angel investing. They have smaller funds. I think in seven years in the future, they're not so worried about things like is the IPO window, you know, Will interest rates go up further? Will the NASDAQ pull in further? You know, can companies IPO? That's not what they're thinking about. So, and, and, and times like this, difficult fundraising environment, layoffs, possible recession, can be a good time to start a company. Plus, there's a very hot sector, which is AI and healthcare, uh, which is generating a lot of interest in funding. So, any other thoughts about the private fundraising environment, um, uh, Grady? I agree with you there that the, uh, you know, the cash negative, companies that are looking to to grow uh, at all costs, if you could say, you know, many of the companies that have IPO'd, they're not showing a path to profitability as well, um, even when they haven't utilized a SPAC. Uh, and so, yeah, figuring out that late stage um, opportunity to, to really build, build value, uh, I think is murkier than it has been, especially when you don't have that uh, speculative money available at such a low rate. Um, <clears throat> folks that are angel investors, seed investors, they're still more closely tied to the product. They want to, they want to build you know, find a great company and a great team and, and help move them forward. And their bets aren't, uh, again, so, uh, akin to say a private, private equity type of an investment. So I think that there, there still are opportunities in the case of Nightwear, uh, that, vast majority of our funding comes from, from angels and, and even small angels, uh, because the PTSD issue, it's closely tied to the military. Many people that have a, uh, a military focus and military interest and uh, several other companies that I can think of off, off the top of my head that their early funding tended to come from people that have a kind of an advocate mindset, wanting to help people in a, in a given population. And that's what helped to move them forward. That's great. So I'll touch on valuation levels briefly. So um, here I'm referencing the SAS Capital Index, um, and you know for for their last published note, uh, you know uh, valuation level, which was end of uh, February, they're seeing SAS companies on average valued at about 7.2 times forward revenue. That is compared to uh, uh, that's at the median. That's a, compared to at the medium in the median in the long term of around eight. So actually, SAS valuation levels today are not that far from their long term median. Um, so to give you an idea of how crazy it's been, um, uh, 
uh, and this has been relatively steady. So uh, SAS valuations at the median are at about 7.2, and that's close to where they were last month and the month before. So um, the SAS index back at the trough back in January, that number was down at like four to five times. So, uh, uh, and then at the peak in in 2021, it was up at 16 times. So, so, so people, you can see how some investors might have invested at the peak and now look at the valuations they're seeing. And then when you get to high growth numbers at the peak, um, uh, high growth SaaS was seeing 30 to 35 times forward revenue valuations. And now high growth SaaS is seeing at most eight to 12 times for forward revenue. So so you can see how much uh, valuations have pulled in, but they pulled in maybe close to where the median was. It's still a problem for, for companies that have, and investors who raised money at, at the peak. So any thoughts on valuation levels? Well, and exactly. And the way that you architect your business and you architect your model, many times it is difficult to, to make those uh, large changes midstream. In the case of Nightwear, uh, and I can speak for, for s several other companies that come to mind, uh, you know, building conservatively, building with the idea that there isn't always going to be that next round to, to fuel your growth and, and trying to find that balance between revenue and valuation is uh, is key. And it's all the more important now. The fact that the uh, multiples of revenue are still where they're at, I, I would say it's reassuring. I don't think that companies need to be at 20x revenue um in order to be able to, you know, to raise a good valuation if they're if they're building intelligently. That's great. And then, are, are there any reports or findings that have come out this week? Uh, you know, any of the usual research companies published anything? I, I haven't seen any this week. Is there anything that I missed that you noticed that you thought was important? No, I think that you know there have been some some announcements to the positive and the negative, but not not any analyst reports that come to mind. Okay, great. So then conferences and events coming up, uh, the, the forward prospect. So Vive is going on right now. I'm hearing good things about Vive this year. Um, Vive focuses heavily on uh, healthcare systems, provider organizations, and, and the software vendors who sell to them. Um, and then uh, uh, HIMSS is coming up after that. So that, that's April 17th to 21st in Chicago. Tickets are $1,600. Um, and they have a track for entrepreneurs to connect with VCs. Um, and they have a track for startups to present to an audience. And so if I were to start a, a young company CEO, I would, and HIMSS is the organization of hospital CIOs. So this is very much, an, and they've tried to expand that to be more broadly innovation in healthcare, but it's hospital CIOs as product buyers. And then product sellers are vendors who sell into those buyers at like hospital CIO. Maybe you could throw in other departments of the hospital, maybe even the CFO, which is a big budget for technology at the hospital as well. Um, and they've been trying to expand that beyond just the hospital CIO. This used to be the big conference. Uh, I think if I were a young company leader, I'd still go to this conference and I would try to, to match with VCs and I'd seek to present and I'd seek to meet with buyers. Um, uh, yeah, but I also hear that um, HIMSS is sort of slipping in, uh, in interest. Uh, and I know that the Vive people, that's the HLTH team right there. They put their own conference, Vive, right before HIMSS to, to, to sort of uh, steal some of the funder from HIMSS and maybe to steal the business, the conference business from HIMSS. And so, I, I've, and so I, I've heard people just more enthusiastic about going to buy than to HIMSS, uh, we'll see. So then BIO's coming up June 5th to 8th in Boston, tickets are $3,500. Um, 
they have a startup stadium um, and a business forum one-on-one -on -one for partnering meetings. And so if I were a digital health company that sells into uh, either I'm a software company that sells into the life science uh, uh, and biopharma buyer, um, or perhaps I'm even a digital therapeutics company, would I go to this? I think I would go to this. Um, I would participate in the startup stadium and the business forum one-on-one -on -one partnering meetings, et cetera. But just understand, and in the past, bio has had a digital health track, and I've spoken at that track. Um, but I don't think that I didn't see them bragging about their digital health track this year. And a lot of companies are, are coming back, conferences are coming back a little weaker uh, now because they were gone for a few years. We'll see. I don't know if there's a digital health track at bio this year. Um, but uh, just understand that, that these resources are overwhelmingly used by standard biopharma. And you are part of, you know, less than 10% of the attendees who are there. So you're seeking to meet VCs who invest in software. You know, you're, you're a small part of this conference, uh, but I think it's worth going to. Um, then there's the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, June 6 to 7. So that, that overlaps with bio also in Boston, $1,300 tickets sponsored by Flair and Humana. Is, uh, and this is an outstanding independent investor conference. And I think it's going to be especially strong in for uh, software vendors who sell to providers and payers. And they've got, I mean, Humana is a co-sponsor. Um, it's not, it's not, it hasn't historically focused on digital therapeutics, um, but this is, a, but, but this is, this is probably the, one of the best investor conferences outside of JP Morgan healthcare conference in um, San Francisco and also the HLTH conference. So this is an independent investor conference. And so then I'll, I'll also bring up um, health 2.0 in Las Vegas, July 10th to 12th, where tickets are $2,000. So this is really interesting because this is, um, I, you know, I know Matt Holt who founded Health 2.0, he sold it to Hims, And then I was actually co-founder of the Boston chapter of Health 2.0. And this Health 2.0 organization is completely dissociated from Matt Holt and Hims. So he, he sold Health 2.0 to Hims, and then Hims renamed it. And then someone else, we don't know who it was, started up Health 2.0, he's doing a conference in Las Vegas and is selling tickets for $2,000. So I don't know. I think it takes a lot to get a conference <laughs> off the ground. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have no experience with this conference. Uh, so, and I would, I, would be, I, I would be somewhat cautious about, you know, going to this conference. Um, uh, so uh, that's uh, Health 2.0. You know, usually that was a, a, a product for young companies to show off. That, that was a conference for young companies to show off their products across all of Health 2.0 to bigger companies who could partner um, or be corporate development partners, resellers, or buyers of those companies. So that, that's typically what it was historically. Um, so with that, that's, that's my reviews of upcoming conferences. Grady, any conferences special to your industry, or are you going to anything in the next three months or so? Um, or do you have any um, you want to review any conferences? So the conferences that, that we're focusing on are um, focused on the military vertical. So... Uh, military doctor societies, uh, the, Un the Uniformed Services Association of Family Practitioners uh, will be attending the American Psychiatric Association Conference, and there's a uh, Society of Uniformed uh, Services Psychiatrists the day before that. So we tend to be focused more on, the, on that vertical at this point because we have insurance coverage through uh, TRICARE for active duty service members. In terms of investor focus, um, certainly... Uh, planning to meet 
with investors uh, when we're out in San Francisco for the American Psychiatric Association. And uh, the Digital Therapeutics East, I'll, I'll certainly be attending that, uh, DTX East. Um, but, but overall, uh, there's a, it, the, the bloom is off the rose for digital therapeutics a little bit. I have to say in terms of investors, there, there were even, even at 5 a.m. I mean, there, you pointed out, uh, I think pretty eloquently at JPM that um, a lot of that early funding was coming from the biotech and pharma uh, pot of money. And that these early companies were trying to, to draw that bridge and draw that connection and they did so successfully enough to raise some some huge rounds, but it's not really bearing out. And so I don't know what signals people are are seeing, um, especially with the economy where it's out to have these big cash flow negative uh, bets that they're placing. It's it just I think that the, the the waters are murky and that's where folks tend to maybe stick to, to what's a little bit more stayed and a little better understood. That's great. And so last, before we ju jump into the main topic, you know, personal appearances. So I'll be in New York next week, the week of the fourth, uh, anyone from the audience, if you want to meet up in New York, happy to meet with you. Um, and then I'm doing a, a drinks night uh, in New York um, on, uh, uh, on Wednesday, April 5th uh, in the Grand Central area. Um, uh, and ping me if you'd like to go to that. Uh, and then on Thursday, April 6th, I'm doing another drinks night uh, in Philadelphia at the at the Hyatt in downtown Philadelphia. Uh, and then on April 13th, I'm doing another drinks night in Boston at the Liberty Hotel. So people who want to you know meet up, I'm, I'm sort of convening um, the uh, the young company leaders and investors in those cities to talk about topics of the day. Uh, any any personal appearances or you know places you, you mentioned you're going to um, uh, uh, DTX East, which I, th I think is outstanding. So DTX East, great conference. Uh, there's few that are truly focused on prescription digital therapeutics. That's one of them, and it's a great place to meet innovation executives from pharma. They tend to go there, and young company leaders tend to go there to meet those innovation executives. Um, but you're right. I think it's going to be you know it's going to be a kind of a autopsy type or a a um, you know a sort of a uh, you know, uh, a, a case of people talking about, you know, about what happened or, uh, at the upcoming DTX East. Uh, any, any places you're going that you would want to meet people? I'll be attending the sleep conference as well. So uh, we're fortunate in that we have enough traction in the market that speaking with prescribers, speaking with key opinion leaders is, you know, really has to be the focus of, of, of where we're at. And we're we're generating enough cash flow. We are cash flow positive, and so while we're certainly focused on um, always meeting with new investors, it's not our top priority right now. It really is growing our prescriber base and continuing to treat people with nightmare disorder. That's great. So uh, now moving on to the main part of the show. The topic of the show is who will emerge in the second wave of digital therapeutics. So, Grady, you recrafted that title. Um, why don't we start with um, just, you know, uh, uh, what was the first wave and why are you calling uh, what's next a second wave? Well, you know, to speak candidly, on, in the case of paratherapeutics, I had gotten some pretty strong feedback about their, their interface, just simple things like the interface of their product and that it was um, rather difficult to access. And, and so when you're talking about, uh, you know, a company and, and, and kind of its arc, you have to look at each piece of it to really understand where there was benefit and, and where there was difficulty. And then you contrast 
um, maybe some of these folks that that really came out um, hard, and you can you contrast them with like a click therapeutics or something like that, where uh, they really are heavily focused on development and on excuse me, and on um, you know trying to make sure they're hitting the right target. And so when I when I look at kind of the next phase, I think of companies like a Free Spirit that I know has uh, very good market traction, and there are other companies that. Um, again, when you're early in a, in a cycle, you want to identify, you, you maybe identify with the form factor in which you deliver. So digital therapeutics, that was beneficial. There, there, there was room to kind of, um, uh, condense focus and, and, and come out together, especially when it comes to advocacy with government policies and lobbying and things like that. But ultimately what we're all trying to do is alter a disease state. So if you're doing, and, and again, this is just an example, but, uh, you know, Ambien is a drug that people consider very successful for uh, dealing with uh, um, insomnia. Now, that, that's got its costs and benefits. But if you're going direct uh, head to head with Ambien, you know, that's maybe a tough place to be. But in the case of nightmare disorder, nightwear is the only indicated treatment. And so, you know, we really have a little bit more of a green field there. So I think that, again, pharma this is always the case, right? Because they're making such huge bets and their development cycles are so long that it's scrutinized by hundreds and hundreds of analysts across the board, internally, externally, consultancies. There's so much work that goes into really assessing the minutia of every offering when it comes to a molecule, because again, there are billions of dollars on the line. In the case of digital therapeutics, it's, it's approached that, but ultimately developing software uh, the risk profile is different, both from an, an economic perspective and then in the, in the case of the treatment, right? Um, and so dozens, hundreds of hardware products that are, that are only considered devices, they have a software aspect to them. Is it necessary to have the software exist off on its own and be available to everyone on their consumer devices? To me, I don't necessarily see the benefit of that unless you're trying to uh, create this idea of a, a ubiquity, a, a synergy with pharma that can reach all populations, but that's not really how prescription are filled, right? Prescriptions are filled patient by patient, doctor by doctor. And that's more the med device route, which, you know, doesn't have the huge ceiling or the huge uh, investor base that biotech and pharma do, but it's maybe more realistic in terms of building solid uh, growth companies. And so. So that, that's interesting. So pair was definitely a story of a software company that was trying to say, we will be, we will follow the biotech model. We'll follow, we'll follow the biotech model in terms of, of pricing and in terms of the way we, the way we sell and, and uh, valuations and that sort of thing. Uh, and a lot of people have pointed out that um, that digital therapeutics, many of them may wind up falling in the medical device model. So why is that? Well, it's because um, they, when you don't get immediate coverage, you have to earn coverage uh, because IP can be weaker in digital therapeutics because nothing is as strong as um, you know as a new molecular entity uh, IP over in biotech. Um, and you could have fast followers uh, as well in digital therapeutics. And so that may wind up looking like the medical device model more. Um, so 
uh, and, and we're still figuring that out. But I, I want to spend the first part of this discussion a little bit more on reimbursement models. So for the sake of our audience, if our, you know, a lot of our people in our audience are experts already, but, but for the sake of our audience, assume that they're not experts. And can you just walk us through what are the major reimbursement models? And that's part one. And then part two, can we learn anything from the story of Pear and some of the other companies as to what is working today uh, in terms of, and what should a young prescription digital therapeutics leader be thinking about in terms of, of getting to a reimbursement model that works? Well, I know that there are groups um, like the Digital Therapeutics Alliance that are, you know, they're, they're trying to move mountains on the, uh, on the legislative side. You know, they're trying to lobby uh, Capitol Hill. But as it stands, um, there, you, you can be reimbursed. As, as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the one path for digital therapeutics to currently be reimbursed is as a durable medical equipment. Right. And so um, in our case, we utilize uh, device management to lock down an Apple Watch and an iPhone to run only nightwear. And we present <clears throat> we present nightwear as a durable medical equipment. You can get off the shelf technology, lock it down, and present your software, and that is a viable path to reimbursement. Now, the key to all of this is: Are you altering a disease state? Are you creating a beneficial scenario for a payer where you're saving money while improving care? And I think that's a little bit lost in all of this. We're so busy talking about valuations, talking about money raised, talking about licensing deals. The real question here is, are you making patients' lives better? And I have to say that our, our, our chief commercial officer, Matt Tucker, who's, who's brilliant and who's, who's been in the industry for a long time, he pointed that out to me years ago, that he's not hearing anything about doctors and that his entire, you know, he ran the worldwide EpiPen business, among other uh, med surge businesses, and his entire focus is on would a doctor and a patient how would this how would this change a patient's life, and how how would you get a doctor to give this a try? And so, in the case of nightwear, uh, from running scientific advisory boards, really understanding what are the current treatments and how do you contrast against that? Because no no one treatment is going to solve every problem. Right, but you have to understand where you fit in in the particulars in a given market perspective. If there's an established player, well, how often are they successful? How often are people refractory to it? What is the size of the of the patient population, and how can you best serve them? And and is your is your improvement is it is your incremental improvement enough to really move the needle to have somebody try something new? And <clears throat> of course, there's questions of pricing, and uh, but but form factor. It, it really was the prominent, uh, everybody was just convinced we're going to, you know, we're going to have a specialty pharma model and you're going to go into CVS and you're going to get a code. Uh, but it was like, who's going to administer all of this? Who's going to make sure all of this happens? Um, and of course there's cash pay and there are companies that, you know, they're offering financing for cash pay directly on their websites. Uh, so, uh, the question of how you do that, I wouldn't presume to understand anybody's particular business, but I also think it's important to not have any preconceptions just because whatever emerges next, um, just because there's a prominent way of thinking, don't necessarily think that's the that's the right way of thinking. Because in the case of Nightwear, because 
the because we provide direct feedback to a person's wrist, we always knew that we had to have hardware as a part of it. And we would look around and ask, why is there nobody else talking about <clears throat> utilizing hardware? It was as if durable medical equipment was lesser than if you just had a pure software play. Whereas now, I think there's a lot of a lot of folks that feel maybe a little bit untethered because they don't have some type of a hardware as the foundation to their to, to their deliver what they're delivering. Very interesting. Thanks. And so I have a lot more questions, but I'm actually going to start turning to our audience. And so for our audience, I'm going to start reading some of the remarks or questions from the chat room. Feel free to add more uh, and then also turn to our callers as well. So um, uh, uh, the uh, uh, so um, yeah, I guess one question, this is from uh, Galvosis, is uh, what, were just, what were the biggest challenges on getting reimbursement for your company? Well, in the in the case of night where it was it was published data, right? You have if you don't have published randomized clinical trial data, and <clears throat> many companies, and, I, and I'm certainly not trying to be critical, but many companies that claim to have randomized clinical trial data, when you dig a little bit deeper, it's really outcomes versus standard of care. It's not a true randomized clinical trial uh, results that they're showing, and doctors do not they do not want to hear about anything other than uh, randomized clinical trial data. And so uh, there was maybe a little bit of a lowered bar in terms of uh, regulatory clearance for digital therapeutics and that not everything had to be a randomized clinical trial. But in terms of prescriber acceptance, you have to have RCT data. And so until we had our data published in October 2022, um, it, it was a harder it was a harder road for us where nightwear had a real benefit is that it's nightmare disorder is an orphan condition. There is no indicated treatment for nightmare disorder. Um, the most often used treatment is uh, a dr an off-label heart medication called Prazosin, which has uh, <clears throat> mixed efficacy data um, worked for maybe let's just say 20% of the people. So we knew that there were still people that had kind of tried everything and they were still in despair and, and nightmare disorder. Um, there's an independent risk factor for suicide involved with nightmare disorder. And so there's a sense of urgency. People are desperate in these situations. And so uh, when nightware started to get reimbursed uh, for active duty service members, our chief medical officer is the former chief of sleep medicine at Walter Reed uh, retired as a colonel after 21 years of service. And so there was a uh, credibility that he brought with other military doctors that uh, allowed them to uh, have, have enough belief to, to utilize nightwear. But even in his case, um, I, I talked with him for two years before he really started to believe that nightwear uh, was a viable treatment. And as he describes it, nightwear is really a new paradigm of, of sleep of, of treatment for nightmare disorder. You can alter somebody's brain chemistry. You can utilize cognitive behavioral therapy to maybe change the content of their dreams or the person's reaction to the dreams, or you can just stop the nightmares from happening. And so, uh, so I'll, you know, I'll jump to that the next question, which is, um, which is just, uh, are there any specific features of digital therapeutics, nightwear or others that you know of that patients found particularly engaging or motivating? Uh, and so, 
such as gamification. Um, and so I'll just add there that uh, I think prescription digital therapeutics can be very powerful um, in part because we tend to use our smartphones. Um, uh, and in the case of nightwear, it's also an Apple watch. We tend to use them, uh, you know, uh, uh, look at them a hundred plus times a day. Um, and so simple things like the ability uh, of an app you know, on a smartphone um, to be on your homepage of your smartphone, to, to give you a message indicator, like one or two for you to look in and see what messages are for you, to penetrate the lock screen so that even before you unlock your phone, you can see a message from your digital therapeutic app on your phone. Um, and then gamification as well. I, I like uh, Achille as well, where um, they have a, an attractive game uh, where uh, someone with a child with ADHD plays the game uh, and the game is, 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 is teaching them and monitoring them and giving them therapy uh, to address ADHD behavioral issues or whatever. So th those are just some examples. But uh, so, Grady, any, um, any specific features that patients have found especially engaging or motivating with Nightwear or with some other uh, product that you know of? Well, and to go a bit further, there's a company in Minnesota called Learn to Live, and they provide uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. They provide a catalog of cognitive behavioral therapy, and then they sign with a payer that they receive a small amount per covered life. And so prescription digital therapeutic may not always be, you know, that's not the only route to get to market, right? There are definite advantages, and that's what we saw. Uh, so I spent 12 years in the video game industry, and uh, there's certainly um, room for, you know, when I think of gamification, I think of making things temporal, you know, accounting for, for social aspects. But ultimately, our number one focus is simplicity, because what we're talking about is people with post-traumatic stress who are sleep deprived and are maybe a bit irritable. Maybe they're not, <clears throat> maybe they don't have a lot of patience for going through too many steps. And so Nightwear, ultimately, we have a start, a start button and a stop button. And we're going to be adding patient surveys. We're going to be adding some new features post-prescription to draw people in a bit more. But we're very wary of overcomplicating or moving away from that simplicity that has really gotten us to where we are. Um, I think so often people... They may have an idea of all the things they want to do or they want to, you know, you heard a lot in the early days, we want to build a platform, right? <clears throat> but ultimately, why do people care at all, right? It's because you're making their life better. And then if you have great design, if you have great features, those are certainly benefits. And if you're talking maybe about more consumer software, you know, then gamification design are of utmost importance. But I think with a prescription digital therapeutic, uh, you know, you've really got to nail uh, the context, for which you're providing your treatment to somebody. And although you may have a desire to add more features or add more variations to your product, ultimately patients who aren't, maybe they aren't tech savvy, maybe they don't care about the tertiary things that could benefit your offering in the future. If you stay focused on what's that core experience, what's that vertical slice of your experience that makes it great? And, and how do you really ride that? Great. And then Yash asks, um, uh, how do you think PDTs should be priced? Uh, so, you know, let me mention that, you know, Pear very much had the view that they ought to be priced at equivalence with drugs. So if six, if a six weeks course of therapy with a drug costs $2,000, they wanted, you know, $2,000 for their equally effective 
app. And I think a lot of people on Wall Street liked that story. I don't know if we're, we're going to ever see that story. Um, uh, and then equivalency tended to mean that somehow digital therapies would often get a little less than a, a molecular drug. So they might get 80%, but typically the the, the vendor, the manufacturer was very happy to get 80% of a, a high on patent drug price. So we don't know if we're, if we're going to if that model is going to work in the future, but can you tell us how Nightwear is priced and how do you think PDTs should be priced? Well, ultimately you have to look at the disease state and the cost of, <clears throat> of servicing a disease state. So in the case of, of PTSD, it costs about $25,000 a year to treat somebody with PTSD uh, through um, outpatient, outpatient care, inpatient care, drugs, etc. And so you, you need to show how you're altering those costs. Ultimately, uh, I think that pharma pharma has such primacy in these scenarios that a new drug can come out with maybe a bit more limited HELR data, but they've got more gravitas to be able to dictate the prices they see fit and kind of work backward from there. These are huge companies, many of them uh, over a hundred years old. Uh, with extremely strong political ties, uh, both in the government as well as in the healthcare system. And so that's really rarefied air. To, to, so I think there's nothing wrong with somebody wanting to tie themselves to a, a model uh, to consider one of the most profitable and successful business models ever conceived. But I ultimately think that there's maybe a little bit higher bar for a digital therapeutic because you have to show uh, how you're benefiting people over a number of years, the durability of your treatment and, and ultimately uh, cost savings to be able to justify uh, your price point. And so again, in, in, in insomnia, for instance, right, you can point to indirect costs of insomnia, but it's maybe a little bit more difficult to kind of come up with that model um, <clears throat> that shows exactly, you know, where those costs are and, and how you can, how you can save them. Or in the case of PTSD and nightmare disorder, um, that is a much more um, critical uh, disease state PTSD. You know, we, we've seen a lot around that, that uh, connection between PTSD and suicidality, uh, lower quality of life and such. And so trying to, uh, you know, balance all of those different costs. Uh, it's a longer, it's a longer uh, road, right? So uh, when we think about CMS and we think about private payers, we don't think about focusing on them in the next 24 months because we have the DOD and we're, and we're, we're uh, pursuing the VA as well. And they don't have those same uh, cost model uh, HEOR uh, requirements that, that CMS and private payers do. And so we can focus on those entities, focus on servicing the need there and gather our economic data over time. Whereas, whereas, very few companies have taken that approach, which honestly befuddles me a bit because uh, the VA and the DOD, uh, the Department of Defense, uh, they're government-run entities, so they don't have the same requirement around cost savings as uh, private payers do. And CMS is a, I mean, they still, as we know, they still use um, economic pricing models from the 80s in order to price uh, against many products. And so you have to have a very, very strong argument, really a bulletproof argument. And if if it's your, if, if getting CMS, getting a code is your only path to market, you, you're probably going to go out too early. 
and and it, and it might it might backfire on you a bit. And so really understanding how you can get from A to B. And if you're burning twenty or thirty million dollars a quarter, it's very difficult to to have too long of a runway before you start to get that market acceptance. That's great. So we're at the top of the hour. I hope I can keep you a little longer. Um, for our audience who is here for an hour, uh, this is a good juncture to go. Um, but at the top of the hour, what we do is that Grady and I head over to the bar. Um, and at the bar, we talk about what's really going on in the industry and we do more audience Q&A. Um, and so uh, if, this, if you could only stay for an hour, this is a good juncture to go. Um, but otherwise, I hope you'll join me and Grady at the bar. Um, so great. So now we're, we're relaxing at the bar, Grady. Um, so do you have more time with us or? Of course. A little more. That, that's great. So, um, you know, another question from Yash, uh, he just asking if you could comment more on remote patient monitoring, remote therapeutic monitoring, um, uh, and other reimbursement models beyond, um, durable medical equipment and any thoughts on, are, you know, are these, uh, you know, uh, and also the, the, we've had a kind of a reckoning with, with what's happened with Pair and some of the other public digital therapeutics companies. So any, just any reflections on, on these other models? Well, when I think of, of <clears throat> remote, uh, excuse me, remote patient monitoring, I think you know, that's a code for doctors, right? So there you're, you're trying to, you're trying to show an economic argument of how utilizing a given treatment can work out for a doctor economically, um, you know. So, so in, in our case, uh, sure, if you're doing uh, telemedicine or things like that, you know, there there are opportunities. But um, if if you're in a position where you're receiving a uh, significant reimbursement for you for your uh, core treatment, you know, the key is to get that message out. And, you know, what, you know, so we're very focused on the, on the model that we've moved forward with. I don't want to opine too much on, on alternatives, but again, it's, that's the creativity of entrepreneurship, right? It's not coming up with the idea. It's figuring out how to marry the idea with a sustainable business model. And uh, so I'm, I'm, again, uh, I'm, I'm certainly open to, uh, to any uh, conversations that folks want to have, but, um, you know, I upon re upon receiving um, healthy reimbursement as a, as a um, durable medical equipment, uh, we we certainly look at, at at some of these monitoring codes, and certainly it certainly is a benefit to the doctors prescribing. Uh, but but it's not our it's not our core focus. That's great. Um, and so now we're going to try taking a caller. So Milos, you've been very patient. Thank you. Uh, I'm about to. Uh, to promote you to be a caller here. I hope you're still, I hope you're still there. Um, uh, and we'll see, we'll try out uh, having a caller on the, on the line. Uh, we'd love to get your question. So here goes. So, hey, Milos, you're, you're on the air. Can you introduce yourself? And do you have a question for me or Grady? Uh, I do. Thanks so much for being on the line tonight. Um, my name is Milos. I'm uh, Graduating MD MBA student at Georgetown. Um, I'll be starting emergency medicine residency at NYU this year. Um, and I've been uh, involved in entrepreneurship uh, for a while now. But my questions sorry, I'm also doing um, a consulting project right now for a, a prescription digital therapy company uh, in Germany. Um, 
So my first two questions are personal and my third are more around the consulting line. Um, but I recently won a pitch competition uh, for prescription digital therapeutic idea that uses commercially available hardware, you know, like an Apple Watch or something else. Um, and then I've had some potentially concerned investors. I was like, okay, now um, what happens if Apple or Whoop or uh, Fitbit wants to pull out um, or sue? Uh, so how do you um, calm investor fears and maintain good relationships with those hardware partnerships? Well, um, you know, in the case of Apple, Apple has uh, a million and a half apps in the app store. I think they do north of uh, 20 billion a year in Apple watch revenues. So I don't see them pulling out anytime soon. Um, you know, the hope would be that there's something patentable uh, within your solution. Uh, Cause that certainly helps in terms of um, barriers to competition. So I think in terms of being a innovative digital therapeutics company, uh, there's, I mean, whoop is a extremely successful. So, is, so is Apple uh, Fitbit. Um, you know, we looked at Fitbit early on and they don't allow access to raw data uh, for third parties. And so that disqualified Fitbit for our case, but in the case of the Apple watch, um, Apple's been an excellent uh, partner and, and ultimately Apple's a hardware company, right? So they have some software utilities they provide, but, but they're all their earnings, all their focus is on, uh, Hey, when you join the AARP, you need an Apple watch. And so we found that they've been uh, extremely uh, supportive and, and innovative. And so um I think maybe doing a bit more education with your investors to just point out that I really can't, I can't conceive of a scenario where Apple would sue an app developer for coming up with a great solution. And so I think that there's, you know, it's, it's very, it's very healthy to be skeptical, especially when you're talking about investing your money. But I think that there's uh, a very, straightforward pitch deck you could put together to, to, to explain that in, in uh, ways that, that folks can readily understand. Uh, but also I think makes the argument pretty clear. So Milos, I'll just add that uh, this was an interesting story case study of Agamatrix. It might be worth looking at this. And this was over 10 years ago. Um, they developed one of the first uh, blood glucose monitors that connected to an iPhone using the then the then current now old, you know, wide connection to iPhones that we were familiar with from, from long ago. Um, and their advice, their device had to get cleared by the FDA in every specification. And so when Apple su surprised people with the current lightning, um, uh, uh, you know, connection, uh, Agamatrix wasn't prepared uh, and it, uh, it had to develop a new product and put the new product completely through FDA clearance, uh, even though it was just Apple changing a connector, uh, but this affected their, uh, blood, their blood glucose monitor. Um, and it, it made the economics much worse for them. And they ultimately, I think, if I remember the story correctly, they ultimately exited that marketplace um, because some buyers would be buying a device that had to be cleared separately, that had the new connection and some would be buying uh, the old connection. Uh, and uh, and they had to 
it doubled, you know, it doubled their costs among other things in certain ways. And so I guess I, the, the lesson of that is, you know, to, to be aware of from a hardware perspective, you know, what's changing to have to, to, to maybe to work on multiple hardware platforms, to be aware of what's changing. If maybe your connection is Bluetooth, in which case you have to know about how Bluetooth is going to change and how that's treated from a regulatory perspective. Uh, so I think that the lesson of Agamatrix is, is worth looking at. And then I would have make allowance for that. So for investors, you're telling them, you know, Bluetooth is going to get upgraded to the next level of Bluetooth expected on this date. And we don't expect a compatibility problem when that happens, but we have a reserve budget in place in case we do have that. And that, that doesn't change the regulatory status of our device. We don't have to make new devices for the new Bluetooth standard just to, to sort of work that out in advance. What could change on you from that hardware manufacturer and what's your plan? Um, so that, that that's just one you know one thought I have about that. But anyway, go go ahead, Milos. Thank you both so much for the the responses. Um, and I, to the point of Apple and hardware and selling uh, more devices, it's definitely the, the strategy and angle I've been taking. Um, I was curious too around the DME reimbursement strategy right now with um, you know the re- reimbursement policies and a lot of PDTs being. Um, bare to minimum outside of employers. Um, what are the codes or can you explain a little bit more about the DME reimbursement strategies? Yeah. So in the case of the Department of Defense, they'll readily use a, a utility code. And so we're able to use a utility code um, with, with, the, with the DOD. Um, and And one of the keys is that we utilize mobile device management. So the devices are locked down, so they're not generally useful to somebody who doesn't have this problem. So you can't download a browser, you can't text, you can't do any of those things with the devices we provide. So you can really conceive of them as custom hardware. And in the case of employers, uh, you know, that's just such a red ocean. There's so many people trying to get to these different folks, trying to provide them, um, you know, with their solution. It, it's just not an area we're focused right now. Mm-hmm. Not to say it isn't a, you know, a worthwhile uh, pursuit, especially depending on you know the offering someone has. Certainly. And this one, I'll skip the third question, but I'm curious because uh, as I'm going into the medical field, um, what have been good strategies outside of demonstrating the RCT and clinical data uh, in getting providers to not only say, yes, nightwear is great, but actually putting their name behind it when uh, prescribing it to patients? Because that's a different story. Well, I guess when you say putting their name behind it, you know, it's the prescriber behavior. It's, are they prescribing in terms Mm -hmm. of getting somebody to speak out? um, Because we're dealing with doctors that are um, working within the department of defense, there are very high barriers to them saying anything publicly uh, about their use of nightwear. Uh, So they'll say it, you know, informally to other doctors who they may work with, but, what we're finding is that uh, when we interview these prescribers, so high prescribers, people that prescribe five times or more, they're seeing 80% success with nightwear. And they are publishing that data uh, in posters. And so that is a format that they can utilize that is scientifically validated 
<clears throat> they're putting together a protocol for utilizing informed consent to that effect so that they're providing data on the treatment itself without being an endorser. Uh, now, when you get into private practice, private sector, there's much more freedom for a doctor to, to do those sorts of things. But in the case of, of, of these environments, people, when they're having success with something, you know, they want to publish that data. They want that they want to speak to, to the experience that they're having. And we, we have had some, some success that way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll jump on that as well. So, um, the medical device industry is very familiar with the issue that you raised here, and they have a whole expensive system for addressing this. And so, uh, and so, but I'll, I'll go over a little bit their system. This was pioneered and improved and, and, and mastered over time by John Abley and Pete Nicholas Sr., who are the founders of Boston Scientific. Um, but so within medicine, you're looking for doctors, and, and oftentimes we're talking about interventional medicine, but you're looking for do- doctors who have an extremely strong type A personality. So these are, these are doctors who, if, if they had not gone into medicine, they would have been fighter pilots, basically. Um, and they are have, have been attracted to centers of excellence at leading uh, research universities uh, where they have, have appointments uh, and they're also practicing medicine and they are constantly looking for uh, devices to improve their interventions. Uh, and when they see that, they they want to endorse it and embrace it. They typically are high influencers. There's a lot of, uh, of people associated with their medical doc- doctors who, who went through their medical school, who practice using the techniques and do interventions using the techniques that were taught by these uh, strong influencers, um, uh, in- influential physicians. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, there's this, uh, so doctors are very resistant in general to changing behavior. And when they do change behavior, it's often because someone like Spencer King, the cardiologist, uh, you know, uh, 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 adopted an innovation and strongly endorsed it and backed it. Uh, and behind that is a medical device company that co-developed that innovation with them uh, and who is is supporting uh, this doctor uh, messaging and educating uh, uh, other interventional physicians, other interventional cardiologists or, or other interventional physicians um, to adopt this behavior. So behavior change is very hard. And usually it comes from uh, finding those type A personality people who want to be leaders, want to take a risk, want to adopt a new behavior and innovation that has benefits to it, uh, and then are constantly messaging their their peers as someone who's already influential with them to get that uh, change in behavior adopted by their peers. And oftentimes, as I say, this is, this is centric around an academic medical center as well, like those in Boston or Duke uh, or, or other ones that are known for uh, propagating these changes throughout uh, communities of physicians. So that that's a uh, uh, so and that, that's easier said than done, but, that, but that's what's going on when you're seeing, um, you know, uh, certain types of, of interventional doctors uh, changing their behavior, adopting new products. So um, let's see. So we have a, a question from Digital Man. It says, Grady, how did you target and educate doctors to enable them to write the prescription? Right. So. Nightwear was was very fortunate in that our chief medical officer, Dr. Brian Robertson, uh, he actually, he was right at the end of his military career after serving for 21 years and retiring as a colonel. And when you are kind of done, you have this time of terminal leave where you're not going to be deployed anywhere. You're not going to be moved around too much, but you can kind of earn out a little extra time. He chose to leave early to join Nightwear because he wanted to get moving. And so 
Uh, he's the former chief of sleep medicine at Walter Reed. So very high credibility and just a great person. And so when he reached out to other sleep doctors and people that he had served with across the military, he had high credibility and it was current credibility. And in his case at Walter Reed, he estimates that he's prescribed against nightmare disorder over 500 times. And so, um, whereas many of us civilians, we may not have heard of nightmare disorder within the military. It's well understood, especially among sleep specialists and mental health specialists. And so he was able to build kind of early credibility and where we really spent a lot of effort and Matt Tucker really drove this home is on patient selection. So it's not the people that nightwear works best for are people that have a very strong fight or flight response to their nightmare. They wake up with palpitations, they're shaking, they're sweating. And, and so we really focus heavily on patient selection. And then that adds another level of credibility because then the doctor understands that you're trying to set them up for success and set their patients up for success rather than trying to be all things to all people. And so understanding who are the people that you are going to have, you know, the very highest percentage chance of success with. And then once a prescriber has seen success, four, five, ten prescriptions, then they can use their own judgment to say, well, this person doesn't exactly fit the profile, but I'd like to try just to see what are the boundaries of this treatment but really keeping a narrow band focus on where your treatment has a very high probability of success is a key to building credibility. And then also we really lucked out in terms of choosing our chief medical officer. They were willing to travel. They were willing to speak, uh, provide a medical presentation. And so when you're, when you're choosing that person who is going to be your voice, and that really is the voice that other doctors want to hear from, make sure that not only do they have the medical knowledge and the credibility, but also the temperament that they want to go out, they want to engage, uh, much like you're describing, uh, Steve, where it's somebody who wants to engage with people, somebody who comes off well, who who, who does, uh, you know, concern themselves with being well-received. You know, those are all important aspects of, of having that successful uh, early launch. And it really is hand to hand. And and again, when, when we would go to these events and we'd hear people talking about payers and licensing deals and all these macro level things, it really is one to one. It's and then that's the that's the culture of med device. It's sales driven. Whereas with pharma, there's so much work that's gone into the lead up and there's such a huge marketing budget that it is more kind of understood at that point because there is such a high bar for getting a pharmaceutical approved. Whereas in the case of a prescription digital therapeutic, the risk profile is lower. And so the ability to get approved as a class two device, it's just not the same level of risk as a pharmaceutical or an interventional uh, uh, class three uh, uh, device. And so, then it becomes really about, you know, from the day that you that you're working on this, you're trying to engage with doctors. Find and and then <clears throat> it wasn't just Brian's contract. There were people who had been tracking nightwear who understood this problem. They understood the urgency and they reached out to us. But then also cultivating those people because what we find is 
is that prescribers that we've been able to train, help them understand, help them set expectations, they tend to have very good success. But if somebody kind of prescribes out of the blue, we try to get to them as quickly as possible to make sure they are, they are choosing the right profile of patient uh, to prescribe to. Because you don't want to have that, <clears throat> you don't want to have that setback. You don't want to have that so-so experience. You want to, you know, one in four people that has prescribed nightwear has a life-changing experience. That's what drives behavior. That's what drives prescribers is when they can say, I've improved somebody's life and there's no risk to nightwear. That's great. So for our audience calling for any last uh, questions, you know, type in the chat room uh, or um, press the button to be a caller. Um, you can also, if you want to be confidential, you can also email me at Stephen at WardellAdvisorsLLC.com. I treat those emails to me. I, I don't, I don't say the name of the, of the questioner, uh, Stephen at WardellAdvisorsLLC.com. Last call for questions. And so now move on to one of my questions, uh, Grady, which is what are the obstacles to greater industry success in prescription digital therapeutics right now? So I'll name a couple. I'd love to get your take. So one is get, getting covered. So a molecular therapeutic by law, if it meets an unmet medical need, will get covered by CMS and therefore by all commercial uh, insurers. Um, and so that's a, a nice step that uh, that molecular therapeutics get that digital therapeutics don't get. And I know that the DTX Alliance is working on getting equivalency here, getting digital therapeutics treated like molecular therapeutics. And so that's that's a fix for that problem. Another is usability. So uh, you know, pills are very usable, and everyone understands pills. Doctors are taught to hand to prescribe pills in medical school. You know, uh, uh, patients are familiar with pills. Even if patients don't take pills, everyone understands pills. Even if patients don't take half their pills or more than half their pills, everyone understands pills. But if you have a new device, it has different usability. It's got, it may be more difficult for the physician or their staff to handle and prescribe. It may be more difficult for the pharmacist to handle and prescribe. It may be more difficult for the patient to use. And so, and so that they may, you know, it may be criticizable on usability grounds, even if it has, you know, uh, fall off rates the same as pills. But nevertheless, um, it'll, you know, so so usability is a difficult issue. I know Pear and others ran into usability problems in the process, um, and if it doesn't get used, that and it's new and novel, then if it doesn't get used by the patient, then the patient, you know, may not want it anymore. The doctor may not want to prescribe it anymore in their practice. Um, and then the last is I, is IP protection. So that the best IP protection is is a IP protection for a new molecular entity with biotech. Uh, digital health tends to have you know uh, lesser IP protections, more like medical device. Uh, I don't really see a fix here. Uh, I don't I don't see a way to get extremely strong stronger IP protection than than what medical device has uh, in this sector. So those are three obstacles to the industry moving forward is kind of moderate IP protection, but not strong IP protection, usability and getting covered. Do you have any thoughts on other obstacles to progress for the industry? Well, yeah, many, I mean, many specialties don't have never prescribed a device, right? So it's not just a matter of whether it's software or not, but they've never prescribed anything but a pill. And so it's a different workflow. It's a different way of doing things. And so um, you have to have 
you, you have to build that uh, understanding and context for, for how to help people. And I think that many of these solutions, people are trying to provide these macro level platforms that everybody's going to come to our platform. And um, it was almost like they were trying to create a video game console, right? We're going to have everybody come here. That's where people are going to purchase. And then we're going to take a cut and, and, kind of forgot step one of just actually getting people to prescribe the digital therapeutics. And so that form factor, you know, we've, we've chosen our lot, right. That, that we're going to hardware and I'm very bullish on it. I don't really see another straightforward way than providing a piece of hardware because you could argue people understand pills. Well, people understand hardware too. Right. But it's gotta be purpose built. There, there are certain rules around Medicare, right? You can't provide something that's generally useful. Right. So even, uh, you know, when, when Pear went to get a ruling from CMS, CMS just told them, we don't review software, right? Whereas Applied VR, even though much of what they provide is software and they do utilize off-the-shelf technology, they also provide something custom and that that was a key, um, you know, piece of, of, the, of them getting a code. And so uh, the usability of the problems, I would argue that's the more straightforward and to solve. I think that um, people wanted to remain in this kind of mythical realm where anything was possible. And so being software only and then, you know, solving these seven points of failure, uh, that was more appetizing than kind of being brought down to earth, putting yourselves in a piece of hardware and being more akin to durable medical equipment when and folks have to make their own choice there. Uh, so usability, I feel like that's one of the more solvable problems, right? Because when you talk about modern interfaces, modern software technology. <clears throat> I mean, an overwhelming proportion of the country has a smartphone. In terms of um, reimbursement, uh, you know, we've kind of covered that ground pretty well, but it, it plays into the usability as well. In terms of IP protection, you know, we're, we're a nation of laws. And so, uh, sure, it, it, the IP of a pharmaceutical as well as the trade secrets, right? The formulation, how something... Uh, is processed. There are all kinds of uh, different ways that a pharmaceutical can protect itself. Um, <clears throat> in the case of medical devices, um, you know, th there's still very strong IP there, right? So Nightwear has two granted patents and uh, 25 granted claims. But ultimately, patents are a better shield than they are a sword, right? And so the best way to to have your offering be protected is by building a brand and by building great service and building trust. And so that's where we're focused is on, um, you know, we're very fortunate that we have this orphan condition that while there is research around it, there's not anyone really putting that all together in a cohesive uh, scientific framework to un better understand nightmares because they are so subjective right? Everybody dreams di a little differently. Everybody understands the world a little bit differently. And there is nothing more abstract than a dream, than a nightmare. And people are sleeping while they're happening. So they're poorly under, you can't just go get a, a, a sleep study like you can with apnea and understands your dreams. In fact, many dreams never show up uh, because when pe people go in for a sleep study, they don't sleep the same. And so really building building nightwear into the world expert in nightmare disorder. That's our goal. And that's how you protect your business. We're certainly happy to have our patents and they are necessary, but ultimately 
you have to build your expertise and build your understanding and build your alliances. And the, the sleep societies, the mental health societies, you would think that the sleep centers would understand parasomnias extremely well, but they don't. They may, you know, many, many sleep departments, they may have a neurologist that has some focus on, on parasomnias, which is what sleep disorders are referred to as medically. But ultimately, sleep centers are run by pulmonologists, by people focused on the apnea side, because that's such a well-understood path. And, and you know, this is a problem, especially with the, uh, you know, uh, weight problem and obesity problem in America. There's lots of people with apnea. It's a very strong business. And then on the mental health side, uh, folks tend to not be, they tend to not understand sleep as well. Only 4% of sleep doctors are psychiatrists. Only 4% of the people board certified in sleep are psychiatrists. And so psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, they tend to focus on what's in front of them, on what the patient is telling them and what symptoms they observe, and then they try to treat those. And so parasomnias really fall through the cracks. And so we see an opportunity to really become the world leader in the understanding of nightmare disorder. Um, but, but again, to your, you know, IP has its limits, but we are a nation of laws and, um, you know, we treat our patents as hardware patents. And so you know, we have, we've kind of covered all the bases in terms of implementation, form factor, utility in order to protect our, our invention. That's great. And your insight there reminds me of the story of Dithera. So Dithera, uh, you know, uh, is a, a proprietary tablet for reminiscence therapy for people with Alzheimer's loaded with photographs and it calms people with Alzheimer's to go through photographs on this proprietary tablet. And it, it, Everyone always asks, why do you have a proprietary tablet? It affected the business a great deal to have a proprietary tablet. And this is now we're talking about four years ago, uh, Grady. People were, you know, thought this would be such a better company if it was just an app on an iPad. If you could get the same pricing somehow or better or, or a better business model and be just an app on an iPad. Who needs a proprietary tablet? Um, and it was a slightly better product to have a proprietary tablet that did only this with that demographic, the demographic of people who actually have early or full Alzheimer's. Um, uh, and, uh, but nevertheless, uh, there was a belief that it'd be better to make that be a, an app on the iPad. Um, and uh, nobody else was at that time four years ago was thinking I'm going to intentionally be a proprietary device, slightly better, but I'll be a device. Uh, and so that I, one of the insights here might be, Hey, Maybe you should be a proprietary device, make your product a little better by being a proprietary device, mix in a little bit of proprietary hardware into your mix um, so that you can be treated as, as you know, uh, for differently for reimbursement. So that, that, that's very interesting. Um, it certainly is yeah, I contrary mean, to the thinking of four years ago. Yeah, everybody has to make their own decisions, but I think um, building your product with the hardware component is a lot more clear path to market than creating a virtual PBX and, and all these different kind of pieces that people have. People were kind of trying to build this ecosystem, but it wasn't clear to me who was, who, who was, who in the industry, which of the doctors, which of the payers were, were calling for that, right? It was as if there was this infrastructure kind of being built because that's what the industry needed. But was it necessarily what payers and providers were asking for? Because the doctors that I talk to have very little time. And so we're, 
we're excited when we can get there. Some of them, you know, they're, many of them are highly organized and they, they obviously follow up with their patients. So some of them, we get good data on how their patients react to nightwear. But in terms of going, you know, much further than that, uh, you know, they're busy seeing patients. That's great. So uh, that's the end of our questions. Anything to summarize, uh, Grady? Well, uh, Steve, I always enjoy talking with you. You have a great balance between um, holding forth on, on where you see the industry at, but also remaining conversational and uh, and allowing, you know, lots of folks to, to, to have their input and say it. And, and really, you're a great listener, too. So I, I really appreciate being on. And uh, please let me know if there are any other opportunities to, to interact. And, and thank you so much to the audience. That's great. And thank you to our audience as well. So you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk. Uh, our thanks to our guest, Grady Hanna, the founder and CEO of Nightware. Um, you'll find a list of upcoming investor talks at my Eventbrite page at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter, where my handle is at Stephen Wardell. Um, and you can also sign up for our MailChimp list to get advanced notice of upcoming shows. So see you next time on our next show, which is Building a Scalable Health Tech Company with Anne DeGeest on Wednesday, April 5th at 4 p.m. Uh, and for our Boston and Massachusetts audience, don't forget to drop by our next monthly Digital Health Investor Talk Drinks Night on Thursday, April 13th. 530 to 8.30 at the Liberty uh, Hotel Lobby Bar. Thanks, uh, and it's Steve Wardell signing off. Bye-bye.